At the April 25th seminar in honor of the late Richard Baum, Matthew Baum, William Alford, Joseph Fusmith, and Tony Sage made remarks while William Kirby served as moderator. The event was sponsored by the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies and the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. everybody uh, for coming. As you know, this is a seminar in honor of Richard Baum, uh, who is obviously known, I guess, to everybody here in the room. And we thought that actually what we would like to do uh, before we get to the actual panel is invite uh, his son, uh, Matthew Baum, who is the uh, professor of uh, communications uh, here and politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, to say a few words uh, to open uh, the session today. So, Matt. Right. So, I, I guess I'm doing the benediction. Um, so, I actually gave uh, a, uh, quite a bit of thought to what I wanted to say at this event. And I was thinking I felt a little bit like one of the family members of donors who regularly attend ceremonies or honorary lectures around the school. Um, some family member donated money for an award or uh, an event, and members of their families typically attend. The host, maybe the dean, maybe a center director, tell the donor's story and then thank the donor's family members in attendance, often asking for a round of applause. Those folks may have absolutely no knowledge about or to say nothing of any interest in the thing that their father, mother, aunt, or uncle thought was of sufficient importance that they chose to donate a whole bunch of money to Harvard to promote or sustain it. And based on my limited experience with said events at my own center, I think it's not uncommon around here to have a center director working tirelessly to persuade the kids or other relatives that their father or mother's cause should be important to them too. Uh, but regardless, they're celebrated by virtue of nothing more than sharing a family name. In my case, all it takes is a quick glance at my bank account to remind me that that's where the similarities end. Um, but in any case, as uh, some of you, anyone here who knows me knows, I'm not any kind of expert on China. The last time I was there was actually with my father in 1990. Um, so my presence here owes essentially entirely to my family name, plus to a lesser extent, the fact that as it turns out, some of my colleagues here were longtime friends of my dad's. Practically speaking, what that means is that I don't have a whole lot to contribute to the theme of today's panel discussion. So rather than try to fake it, I thought I would just take a couple of minutes uh, and focus a little bit on the friends of my dad's part, because that's what seemed to me most relevant today. On that point, um, I always knew uh, throughout my life that my father had lots of friends, but it's still been pretty awesome to me to see just how many he had all over the country and, in fact, all over the world. Uh, I guess that's evidenced to some extent by the fact that this has taken place here, 3,000 miles away from his home in LA, and nearly 7,000 miles away from Beijing, um, where, in fact, another memorial like this is supposed to happen in a couple of weeks at Peking University. Uh, this was also evident to me almost exactly a year ago when my dad gave a talk at the Fairbanks Center while he was visiting us. He was pretty weak at the time from chemotherapy treatments and almost canceled the trip, but he really wanted to see his grandchildren and also his friends, the chance to visit with his friends here. Uh, and I think he was clearly rejuvenated by both of those things. And ironically, it turned out that several of his friends who showed up at that lecture 
are colleagues of mine here that I had never met. Uh, in fact, with every move I've made since college, and there have been a lot of them, I think uh, I did a back of the envelope and I came up with nine, um, I've benefited a lot from the social infrastructure built by my dad. He collected friends all over the place. <laughs> In every city, there seemed to be someone, typically more than one person, who either knew me as a baby or at least from way back or who'd been my dad's student, who would reach out and offer to help. Um, when I moved to Washington, D.C. after college to attend SICE, and that would be after the Kennedy School rejected my application here in the MVP <laughs> program, which is true. Uh, one of my dad's longtime friends more or less adopted me, becoming my academic advisor uh, while hiring me as a babysitter and paying me a ridiculously high hourly wage, <laughs> basically using the pretense of babysitting to launder money to me without my dad objecting too loudly. <laughs> when I went back to school for my PhD years later, another of his friends, who he had recruited to UCLA as an assistant professor, immediately on my first visit to campus, reached out to me and offered to be my advisor, which he ultimately became. He told me that my dad had taken care of him and his family when he moved to LA, and this was his chance to return the favor. It was a similar story when I moved here nearly seven years ago. There are lots of stories I could tell about my dad. Some of you were participants in them. Uh, some ended up in his memoir, uh, though I have to say not all of the best ones, like my personal favorite, uh, which is the time he got a flat tire on the freeway in LA, pulled over and proceeded to change the wrong tire. Um, I'm afraid that whatever disease that represents, I definitely have it. Um, I, I inherited, so I didn't inherit all good things from my father. Uh, relatively, relatively few of these stories have anything whatever to do with his contribution to the scholarly study of Chinese politics, though many did involve fellow Sinologists. Um, I'm well aware that he made significant contributions to that field, um, some of which I'm assuming are going to be discussed today. I was always well aware of his stature in that regard, even growing up, and I was always incredibly proud about it. And I think at some point as I grew up, uh, that became more intimidating than anything else as I tried to figure out how I could possibly ever measure up. But at the end of the day, that's not what's most salient to me or what I'm going to carry with me. Much more meaningful to me is that despite having, at least in my opinion, incredibly pretentious taste, uh, particularly in movies or <laughs> films, uh, a topic on which we managed to disagree just about every time we saw each other. Um, he had a wonderfully self-effacing sense of humor, a biting sense of irony that I've always tried, um, I'm afraid, never quite successfully to match. Even more meaningful is the fact that so many people in so many places knew and care about my dad to such an extent that they've been moved to reach out to me again and again throughout my entire life. I think the fact that it's my father's longtime friends and colleagues like uh, Tony and Bill here today who wanted to commemorate his career in this way that makes this kind of event meaningful for me. And I want to thank you both for putting this together. And with that, I will stop. Started our panel off in a, and it was just a couple of uh, remarks. I got a letter the other day. Um, uh, Dear Mr. and Ms. Blank, <laughs> in view of your academic accomplishment and prestige in the research area, we are very pleased to invite you to attend the International Symposium to commemorate the 120th anniversary of Mao Zedong's birthday <laughs> to be held in Shantung City, Hunan Province by the China Research Association of Mao Zedong's Philosophic Thought and Mao Zedong Thought 
Research Center of Shantan University. You, this is better to me, are an internationally acclaimed scholar devoted to the study of Mao Zedong thought. <laughs> Your participation will be among the highlights of the symposium, and we, et cetera, et cetera, goes on as a nice stamp, and everything. Clearly, it was meant for Rick, uh, 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 not, not for me. Rick, who was, of course, a wonderful scholar, including of Mao Zedong, if not necessarily his thought, and a wonderfully witty and perceptive writer. But when I think of how I knew Rick Baum best, it was in some sense as much indirectly as directly, because he addressed, I think, as well as anyone, anywhere, what you might call the culture of information in and about China. When I started as an assistant professor, I went to the archives in Nanjing. And to give me a sense of what information control can be like, there was on the blackboard in back of the archivist a big set of uh, regulations against accurate footnotes. Uh, you could cite uh, what you, the document that you had, but you couldn't say what archive it was from. Or you could cite the archive and not the document. And I asked the archivist, what's the point? And she said, well, but then everyone would know. Um, well, Rick's point, I think, was that everyone should know everything we can know about China. And his organization, his leadership of, of uh, China Poll, of CPOL, uh, uh, extraordinarily democratic enterprise. <laughs> Not always right, often wrong, as, as we all are now and again uh, in, in studying uh, this very complicated uh, and, and distant place. Nevertheless, uh, it gave me an idea, or at least an aspiration, of what someday information will be like uh, in China itself. And I'm very grateful for his democratization uh, of the field in a, in a way that continues every day, every hour, almost every minute uh, in postings on CPOL. Well, let me introduce our first panelist who is himself an expert on information. His famous book, To Steal a Book, is an elegant defense. Um, uh, author also of The Emerging Legal Profession in China, uh, of co-author with Ken Winston and, and uh, even a little bit myself, uh, prospects for, the professionalism, for professionalism in China. Uh, let me introduce the Henry L. Stimson Professor of Law and Director of East Asian Legal Studies, Joe Alford. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. So thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Tony, for organizing this. And thank you, Matt, for uh, sharing uh, your thoughts about your dad with us. He was incredibly proud of you. And, and your accomplishments. Uh, so I first had the honor of meeting Rick Baum in 1982, shortly after I joined the law faculty at UCLA as a junior squirt. And Rick was unbelievably generous and kind with me. He uh, helped acquaint me with the foibles of the Chinese studies community at UCLA, uh, much like Chinese politics, uh, riven. And uh, anyway, uh, he read manuscripts wonderfully. and. Uh, he also apprised me that I did not need to wear a suit and uh, shoes and a tie to school in, honor, in order to be taken seriously. He showed up in class often with uh, you know, sort of a t-shirt and sandals. Indeed, I thought briefly today about coming in a t-shirt and sandals to honor Rick, but I'm too compulsively a law professor. Um, but as much as I um, deeply appreciate Rick's uh, friendship and sartorial advice, that's not what I want to talk about today. Uh, 
I want us today to really um, um, see how Rick was not only a brilliant scholar of Chinese politics, but also an enormously prescient uh, observer and scholar of Chinese law, probably less known. Indeed, his rich understanding of Chinese politics uh, deeply informed uh, the uh, very keen observations he had on Chinese law, as evidenced in his 1986 article entitled Modernization and Legal Reform in Post-Mao China, the Rebirth of Socialist Legality, which was published in what's called Studies in Comparative Communism, a, a thinner field and volume these days. Uh, in that piece, Rick really captures the essence of uh, pre-revolutionary Chinese law, both imperial and republican, and he very fairly and even-handedly chronicles the accomplishments of the post-cultural revolution law reform efforts, offering insights that remain true right to the present day. So I want to highlight four observations Rick made in that piece, all of which uh, are very telling uh, to the present day. So Rick reminds us in that piece that although China's 1982 constitution, which is still the constitution today, quote, is relatively tolerant and legalistic, the state remains, albeit with diminished discretionary authority, dominant over society, and the party retains, albeit with diminished absolutism, its self-ascribed role as political and spiritual leader of the nation, close quote. He also, as you can see, wrote uh, very elegantly. Uh, secondly, Rick observed that, quote, party members and cadres who break the law continue to be subject not to legal trial and punishment, but to extrajudicial party discipline, close quote. Certainly something true today. Uh, third, he noted that, quote, despite a dramatic increase in the scope and volume of formal litigation, China's leaders have continued to emphasize the traditional mechanism of informal mediation as a preferred alternative to courtroom adjudication, close quote. And finally, the fourth point I want to underscore, he did tell us, again, I think quite wisely, yet it would be a mistake in spite of all this to conclude that all is sound in fury. Close quote. Now, if I were smart, I would just stop here and leave us with these four observations of Rick, all of which are very astute and telling to the present day. Uh, China has indeed, since the end of the Cultural Revolution, engaged in what, without doubt, is the largest single top-down effort in history to build uh, a legal order. In the years uh, since Rick wrote, China's gone from having the most rudimentary of legal frameworks to now having so many laws on the books that even the best Chinese legal scholars cannot tell you really what the hierarchy of legal norms is, what the relative importance is. And to take but another example, whereas there were almost no lawyers at the end of the Cultural Revolution, roughly 2000, today the biggest firm in China has about that number, and there are 400,000 people every year sitting for the bar exam. But of course, the accumulation of laws and the explosion of lawyers don't necessarily equate with respect for law and legality, nor do they necessarily deliver justice, in spite of what we say at law school. Um, uh, as uh, Lao Tzu put it a long time ago, uh, the more laws, the more thieves. Um, anyway, the, now the structural problems afflicting Chinese legal development are the very things that Rick identified that I alluded to above. The hovering omnipresence of the party the knowledge that it is there in the background, even if it is not explicitly invoked in any particular case, impairs the credibility of the courts and the legal system uh, more broadly, reminding people that there are back doors and discouraging some citizens from even trying to vindicate their rights. 
Now, some scholars, particularly in, well, I won't mention names, but some scholars have argued that uh, all this matters only in very politically charged cases, which, to be sure, no society, in my view, handles terribly well. But I don't agree with that observation. I think it is naive, at best, to assume that judges and officials are wholly indifferent to whom among their litigants have political connections, and uh, also naive to assume that pressure is only exerted in clearly political cases. If anything, for example, the strong push from the top to recently to resolve more and more cases outside of formal legal processes through what's called judicial mediation, through the judges taking people out into the corridor and hammering out a compromise, uh, it, 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 however understandable this might be in terms of institutional interests of the courts or traditions of mediation, it only, it seems to me, creates more opportunity for uh, corruption and use of influence given the lack of fair procedure and the lack of transparency. Nor, again, to refer back to Rick, uh, does the use of party discipline to punish officials rather than sending them through the court system that applies to ordinary citizens uh, necessarily inspire complete confidence in the law. And yet, as Rick noted, it would be an error for us to be totally dismissive, to be too dismissive. As is evident with regard to uh, environmental problems, land expropriation, uh, disability rights, uh, and even sometimes abuse by public security, there are more and more citizens who are invoking the law to try to protect themselves whether they are doing this out of a sense of rights consciousness or in a more talismanic way, it could be the law, it could be a statement by a senior leader, but using something to hold up to officials to resist abuse. Judges are clearly better trained and increasingly professional in applying the law, and certainly astute officials are all too aware that for China to continue to have, or really to have genuine stability, it needs uh, legal institutions that are commensurate with its rich culture and its increasing economic power. So what do the changes of the 18th Party Congress portend? I'll, I'll just conclude with a few thoughts here. Uh, obviously, it's very hard to say. There are some signs of promise, although really, who at this early stage knows? Uh, let me mention two things in particular. The first is that the new principal leader, Xi Jinping, has sought, at least verbally and in some other ways, to exhibit uh, at least the beginnings of a commitment to greater legality. This is borne out in his speeches, for example, on the 30th anniversary of the 1982 Constitution that your dad referred to. He did give a talk extolling the importance of uh, abiding by the Constitution and using it as a vehicle to address things like corruption. But beyond rhetoric, we uh, see possibly uh, hopeful signs in the fact that uh, Xi Jinping has assumed for the time being at least uh, uh, oversight over the Zhengfa Wei Yuanhui, the political legal committee uh, that uh, oversees the legal uh, system, the police, the procuracy, the courts, rather than delegating it to another member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo. And uh, he has overseen the replacement, the retirement of Wang Shenzhen, the previous president of the Supreme People's Court, who did not have a law degree, you'd like to think it's a good idea for the Supreme Court president to have a law degree and his replacement with uh, Joe Chang, who does have a law degree. On the other hand, uh, there remain uh, lots of questions, right? The, the proof lies in the pudding. And there are credible reports of Xi Jinping behind closed doors 
really uh, pushing and pushing on the centrality of stability, of avoiding the kinds of changes that were evident in uh, Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union, uh, Arab countries, and so forth. Uh, secondly, uh, we should take note, we should not lose sight of the fact that uh, for the first time in the history of the PRC, a senior leader is an individual with law training. Li Keqiang, the prime minister, is somebody who has the Beida law degree. And as Bill Kirby astutely noted many years ago, uh, um, there's the progression from uh, leadership being uh, generals on horseback to engineers. Bill pointed out at one time that uh, all nine people in the standing committee were engineers, to lawyers. Uh, so as in Taiwan, for example, where my classmate Ma Ying Zhou is the, the president. Although, again, we should remember that simply having lawyers uh, in positions of consequence does not itself guarantee uh, uh, stability, peace, justice, or anything else. Uh, to be fair to Lee, in his initial press conference, he did uh, speak about the need for greater social justice. He spoke about possible reform of uh, Lao Jiao, of re-education through uh, education. Uh, reform through uh, uh, re-education. Uh, um, he did talk about China's uh, environmental calamity and basically said, hold me responsible if I don't myself have something better to show for it. So, you know, again, who knows? Words are easier than actions, but at least at the outset, uh, we have that. In the end, as Rick pointed out, the question of whether law reform will succeed in China is totally tied up with the question of political reform and whether the CCP is willing to give enough uh, uh, leeway and authority to the legal system to accomplish the things that it was supposedly set up for. Uh, the jury, as we will say, is still out. As Professor Zhang Weiying of Beida said in a slightly different context about the economy, although it applies here, you can paint, zebra, you can paint stripes on a horse, but that, uh, at the end of the day, does not make the horse a zebra. So we have to see with the legal system. But thank you very much, and thank you, Matt. Thank you, Bill. So I'm just back from Beijing a couple of days ago, and I hold uh, Xi Jinping responsible for that <laughs> air that I had to. I know I, it, 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 I, it is true that I once uh, described China's political system as a dictatorship of the engineers, and now that some of them are lawyers, we'll have to see if they bring the same level of, you know, efficiency and honesty that the American Congress uh, <laughs> shows uh, on a daily. On a, on a daily basis. Well, we now turn from, in some sense, a perspective from the law to a perspective from political science. And of course, Rick was a political scientist. And political scientists had a huge impact on the history of modern China. I think a number of you in this room will know the story that when the Qing dynasty fell, Yuan Shikai became the first president of the Republic of China. And he asked Harvard's president, Charles W. Eliot, for a constitutional advisor to advise him on the Constitution for the Republic of China. And Eliot sent him the first president of the American Political Science Association, a guy named Goodenough, Frank Goodenough, who wrote two constitutions for the Republic of China. The first made Yuan Shikai president for life, <laughs> and the second would have made him emperor had he not died first. Uh, this is the contribution of political science uh, to Chinese democracy. So let me now 
ask, in defense of that profession, Professor Joseph Fusmith, <laughs> Professor of International Relations and Political Science at Boston University, then Director of the Center for the Study of Asia, and the author of China Since Tiananmen, From Deng Xiaoping to Hu Jintao, soon, surely, in a third edition to Mr. <laughs> Xi Jinping. So, Joe, please, come forward. Well, Bill, I don't think I've ever had an introduction anywhere near that. Uh, that was something. I will not bear all the sins of political science that are too multitudinous for one person to bear. Um, but I, I just wanted to say, uh, I, I had the pleasure of meeting you, and I don't know why. We've been in the same city for some years. I knew your father for many years. And I just keep thinking, you must have had a great childhood. I mean, I've never been with Rick when we were not laughing. Maybe I should mention arguing. Um, <laughs> well, discussing vigorously. But I th it was the, the laughter and the good humor, uh, the joie de vivre that he brought to so many things. And I, I would just bet that it uh, uh, was part of your childhood. And I, you know, you, your success here must uh, uh, bear that. Um, of course, I, I suppose that Rick is best known to China Field these days for his creation of Frankenstein. I mean, China Pole. Um, everybody lauds Rick for creating China Pole. And I spend hours reading China Pole, thinking, why am I reading this? Uh, it makes a case that democratization of knowledge is not altogether good. Uh, but whether this is a blessing or a curse, it is a great accomplishment, and we live with it. And I remember Rick every day uh, as I turn into that. But it's really his writings that I remember Rick from, not China Pole, which for me is something very late and recent. Uh, you know, I think as a graduate student, I wrote, read his book on the four cleanups movement in China. And then I, I think I had the good sense to go and study the thought of Chiang Kai-shek rather than Mao Zedong. And I just waited for a bad period to pass. And indeed, uh, I really got to know Rick and rejoin him uh, personally as well as academically as he turned his attention to the reform era, which is where I, what I was interested in. Uh, and of course, the product of his uh, ruminations on that was this big, thick book called uh, Bearing Mao. And you know, I don't remember that book title having a question mark. Rick was confident that China was finally past Mao Zedong. I hope he's right, but I fear that he's wrong. A more recent book that uh, Liz Perry and uh, Sebastian Heilman edited is called Mao's Invisible Hand. And indeed, Mao seems to constantly reach out of the grave like some zombie figure from a popular movie to interfere with the Chinese political system. And as I think about the 18th Party Congress, I kind of keep the bearing Mao and Mao's invisible hand dichotomy in mind and wonder uh, where we're, we're going. Um, and I, I must say, one of the many reasons that I miss your father is because I would really like to sit down and argue with him about what the heck is going on in China right now. Uh, at any case, let me throw out a couple of thoughts about what is going on in China. 
one part of which was we had a really messy political process. That's where I would have really liked to have talked to Rick about this, because uh, you would have you can go over the evidence of who did what to whom back and forth infinitely and argue that. I would also argue that despite this really messy political process that we saw over the last year, it produced a, uh, a leader that is taking off rather quickly. Uh, and this stands in real contrast to what we saw 10 years ago when Hu Jintao took over. Uh, now, some people would argue that Hu Jintao started off fairly quickly, but let me just give you some visual demonstrations. This is where the stuff is, this is what, this is what people like Rick and I like to spend our lives and Rod, going over pages of Renman Rabao, reading articles that nobody else can stand to read, and looking at the pictures and trying to figure out what they mean. Uh, this is um, Hu Jintao's first uh, trip outside of Beijing in 2002 after he was uh, named general secretary of the party. And you can see the gentleman on uh, his left, uh, your right, is, of course, Zheng Qinghong. And what's interesting about that is that Zheng Qinghong was the number five person in the hierarchy. And it seems to me to really epitomize my own personal sense of the early Hu Jintao era, which was that he had people, minders, babysitters, people escorting him and watching him. Uh, we never will know what a Hu Jintao uh, administration would be like if he had actually been the number one person in China. Uh, he always had these minders. And I don't think that you can find a picture uh, of certainly Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, or the current um, Xi Jinping that has the number five person looking over his shoulder, basically saying, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, and so it's a very interesting uh, picture. Uh, this is a, a, a contrast. This is uh, uh, Xi Jinping touring the History Museum in Beijing just after the 18th Party Congress. And here he is, front and center. There's no question of who is in charge. He has his people around him, but he is clearly the man in the middle and in charge that the picture is focused on. Uh, and this, this is, of course, where he's taken his Politburo Standing Committee colleagues through the museum and comes out and talks about the China dream. Uh, what exactly the content of the China dream is, is something that we will be talking about for some time. Uh, how much of a, an individual, you know, work hard, make money, do well, buy a house, have two and a half children, that sort of American dream sort of thing, and how much of it is a national and nationalistic dream. I think that both parts are there. Uh, I tend to think the latter part is a little stronger, but at any case, um, this is where he reviews modern Chinese history and comes up with this dream. Um, again, when he goes to Guangdong on his first trip out, I don't see number five sitting over his shoulder telling him what to do. Uh, this is a, and, and also, what's really nice about this picture is he's not wearing a tie. <laughs> this is one of those cases where I think that instead of the tie conveying authority, it's, I don't need a tie. I, I'm in so in charge, I don't need to worry about all those pretenses. Uh, and I think that's what this picture is conveying. Uh, and this is, of course, when he is 
going to Guangdong and bringing back the theme of reform as emphasized by Deng Xiaoping. Uh, I should have mentioned, uh, by the way, uh, this trip um, of Hu Jintao is going to Xibaibo, right, the last revolutionary capital of China. And so Hu Jintao is bringing back Mao Zedong. Uh, just 10 years later, whoops, sorry. Um, Xi Jinping is going back to Guangdong to uh, channel Deng Xiaoping, not Mao Zedong. And I haven't done I, all of my homework yet, but the documents that I've been reading uh, say you know, that we have to you know, study or take uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping thought, uh, um, you know, the three represents, of course, uh, and the scientific development theory. They're not mentioning Mao Zedong thought. And so maybe, maybe he is finally burying Mao. Um, at least to some degree. Uh, I hope so. Um, by the way, this is the other sort of thing, just to, for comparison. When Jiang Zemin came in, you know, you have this terribly awkward period in Chinese politics when you're named general secretary, but the president is still the other guy. You have this six-month changeover, uh, and what do you do with the president? Well, you have these pictures where Hu Jintao is on one side of the picture, meeting this is the Indian foreign minister, and Jiang Zemin on the other side. And the pictures are identical in size. It's only my bad cropping that reduces uh, huh. that picture on the left. Sorry about that. Uh, technically improficient. Uh, and uh, um, similar picture. Uh, I've forgotten who this is. These are appearing side by side in People's Daily front page. You can't find a similar picture of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, which leads me to believe that really contrary to the way we've gotten used to Chinese politics, we've been talking about the consensual decision-making process, I don't see anything consensual about it now. Xi Jinping's in charge. And if he's, not, he probably has to solicit the agreement of his colleagues, but he is setting the agenda in a way that Hu Jintao never did over the previous 10 years. Um, now, of course, uh, I don't want to go on in any great length here, but I think that there are some things that he's trying to do or, or needs to do um, that is, is really important. One of the issues, of course, is corruption. And we have seen the party go after corruption in a way that we haven't seen it go after corruption for at least a few years. Uh, I still remember uh, uh, Hui Aobang uh, going after corruption in the spring of 1986. One of the really classic anti-corruption speeches uh, in modern Chinese Communist Party history. Uh, and that summer, uh, there was a very controversial trial. There were three Gaogan uh, Zidi, uh, princelings, in Shanghai that were convicted of hooliganism and taken out and shot. Uh, and Hu Yabang, not only for that reason, but maybe including that reason, was not secretary general of the party six months later. Uh, at any case, uh, it raises the question not only of the seriousness and persistence of corruption, but instead of doing a campaign about corruption, how about some structural changes? Uh, can you somehow uh, <coughs> work with the system, change the system? Corruption is so deeply embedded in the system that I cannot bring myself of limited imagination 
to figure out how you get rid of corruption without destroying the party itself. Uh, and that's the problem that you have to, f have to face. Um, mostly, and related to that, I see Xi Jinping as, if you will, doubling down on the party. He's not about reform of the party. He's about revival of the party. And if I'm correct that the party is, in fact, the problem, I think that Xi Jinping is as vigorous and confident and so forth as he is, that China is going to have a very difficult time going forward. So maybe, um, I'm not sure if that's optimistic or pessimistic, but maybe Mao will get buried in the process. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. As, as you were speaking, I was reminded of a story that I think I first heard from, from Matt's father. It's about a farmer who shows up uh, uh, shortly after the opening of Chairman Mao's mausoleum in Tiananmen Square and stands in, in those days, there were endless lines to get in and to have a brief uh, look at the chairman who, you know, who was not well. And, the, uh, uh, and this guy came every day for a month stood in long lines every day for a month. And finally, one of the guards said to him, you know, comrade, why do you come, your patriotism and your love of Chairman Mao said, why do you come every day? And the farmer is said to have said, I want to make sure he's still dead. <laughs> uh, um, I remember asking the president of a major Chinese university why they still had a statue of Chairman Mao on the campus. <laughs> uh, uh, and this is last year. And he said, we missed our chance to take it down. You know, Tsinghua took theirs down in the 1980s, but this, the place yeah. that I'm referring to uh, did not. Uh, it's, it's always tough to know what will, what political slogans, and political scientists are the ones to in investigate this first, what political slogans will stick? Will the Zhongguo Meng be as famous 10 years from now as San Gadaibiao? <laughs> um, or Hexia Shihui? We shall, we shall see. But I remember, since I'm not a political scientist, but a historian, I. I have, I'm really wai-hung in thinking about this, but I once, I met Hu, uh, Hu Jintao just before he became president. And on the basis of that meeting, one could have gone away thinking that there was some political reform in the air. Mm -hmm. And then as we've seen, very little happened. I met Xi Jinping when he was vice president, and I came away thinking that I know nothing about him except that he has the same hair colorist as uh, Hu Jintao. Um, <laughs> These are not systems that are easily open to us when one thinks about them. And I remember when I was a really, again, beginning assistant professor, I was invited to the Guomindang Dang Shuhui, a conference in Taiwan, where the keynote speaker giving the hardest line KMT speech, pan blue speech, anti-Taiwan independence, kind of official speech that he's giving the speech, everybody has a copy of the speech, he's reading it, people are pretending to take notes, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, uh, this was Li Denghui, who was giving the speech and clearly didn't believe a word of it. Uh, that's my hope, actually, for, for Mr. Xi Jinping. Uh, in any event, Rick Baum knew, I think, as well as anyone, that political science is not really a science. Uh, he combined theory and practice with a very keen sense of the frailty of human beings and of the human institution and, and the, the institutions that human beings build. And I think one colleague that we have here with us today combines these admirable traits uh, in a way that Rick surely did uh, and, uh, and admire, and that's uh, my colleague Tony Sage, uh, the author most recently of Chinese Village, 
Global Market, the Daewoo Professor of International Affairs, the Director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, and of the Rajawali Foundation Institute for Asia, and of the China Public Policy Program. Uh, thanks. Uh, in many ways, Bill's right. Uh, Rick actually, I think, was a political artist as much as a scientist. Uh, if you spent time with him, he had an extraordinary intellectual creativity. Uh, he always had imagination. He always had new ideas uh, about things. And as a result, it was a lot of fun to be with. Um, uh, Joe <clears throat> already mentioned uh, two of his works academically, which I think will always be remembered. Uh, in Rick's uh, writings, and that, of course, was his earlier work on the pre-cultural revolution period, where he was able to analyze documents to show that there were divisions between uh, Mao and the other people in the leadership, which in some ways was going to preempt uh, the harsher battles that came in the Cultural Revolution. And then secondly, uh, what he's more closely remembered for now is the tome on uh, burying Mao, which started originally as a chapter in one of the Cambridge histories uh, edited by Rod McFarker. But I think that's also unfair on Rick. Uh, Rick actually has a more broad oeuvre than just those two particular works. And he was often very quick to pick up new trends and new ideas that were taking place. Not all of them resulted in publications because he did have a joie de vivre. And I'm sure the times in France, the times with the wine, probably took away some of the uh, writing time that might have turned some of those thoughts and some of those ideas into academic pieces. But I do remember him very early on in the 80s, for example, beginning to think about the consequences of new technologies, mm -hmm. the computer age, and how that might begin to impact on uh, Chinese politics and Chinese society. And I could list a host of other things where Rick often was one of the first people uh, to pick up on some of the new trends that were taking place, whether he did or did not publish. Now, the first time I met Rick, it was actually in the late 1970s, uh, when the two of us were at a conference in London, and we were uh, denounced by Mad Max, Neville Maxwell, one of the uh, old leftists in the UK, as being members of the Deng Xiaoping Black Hand Revisionist clique. <laughs> uh, and we thought that was admirable. We thought he was actually uh, being nice to us. And uh, so that formed a bond from very early on. It's the kind of language you tend not to hear at academic conferences in the West uh, any longer. But it still pervaded in those days. And Rick and I were quite proud initially to bear that uh, token and badge of being part of this Black Hand Revisionist uh, clique together. Subsequently, uh, when Rick was doing most of that work on uh, burying Mao, we were able to host him for a year in Leiden, where I was working at the time. And uh, with Matt here, I won't go into the things that happened in Amsterdam. But what did happen <laughs> in the libraries around Leiden uh, were purely academic and scholarly. And it was where Rick began for the first time to try out the ideas in that book. And I think, along with burying Mao, the question is, do some of those still resonant today? He talked about these cycles of feng and shou you know, tightening and loosening in the Chinese political system, and these kinds of uh, waves that the political system would go through. Invariably, of course, as you come up to a party congress, you tend to have a time of tightening. A little while after the leadership uh, transition has gone through, you get more of an opening up, and you get more of a chance uh, to experiment. Is that something that is still uh, valid or not? Um, 
the other thing, of course, was then Rick invited me, where I was uh, neighbors here uh, with Jeff uh, in Los Angeles, uh, where I didn't write a book. And in fact, I didn't get much done. The one great piece of advice I had was if you're taking a year sabbatical, don't set your sights too high. Uh, maybe think about a book review, and then you'll be satisfied. <laughs> I actually didn't get a book review out, but I took that advice from Rick uh, with good spirit. He also, as a result, helped me organize my marriage uh, while I was in Los Angeles. So we had a lot of uh, close uh, relationships in many different ways going back. And as uh, Bill said, he was always very proud of Matt. Before he came to the Kennedy School, I knew a lot about Matt, what he was doing didn't understand any of the stuff that Matt was doing in kind of communications and theory, but it seemed a lot of fun uh, to me. I was one of the uh, original members of China Poll. I think there were six of us originally. Rick wrote to me saying, uh, you know, we're going to set up a listserv. No idea what a listserv is. I had no idea how to do it, but fortunately I got the technicians to get me onto it. And like Joe, uh, it's one of those things, yeah, maybe we're frustrated when we see the huge inbox in the morning, but it's one of those things we'd probably miss if it wasn't there. Right. And it is an extraordinary uh, contribution, 1,500-odd members now uh, who are on this uh, listserv, as I've learned to call it, or chat group, I suppose, as, uh, as we'd say. But Rick could be sharp. You know, He had a great sense of humor, but if he didn't agree with what you said, or he didn't particularly like you, you knew pretty quickly. Rick could have a very sharp tongue. And uh, that, I think, was also part of the joy of being with Rick. There was no hidden uh, agenda. There was no secrets there. You pretty much knew what you were getting all the way through. So it was great fun. He had a very warm heart. And the last thing I would just say is, Rick Juxi Yong Chui Bu Xiao. So let me turn a little bit then to thinking about uh, post-18th uh, Party uh, Congress and uh, where things are going. Some of it's been uh, covered by Joe, and so I, I won't repeat that. Are we in a feng shou cycle? I think it's hard to say. I think perhaps we are potentially looking at some of the relaxation, uh, but I think there are severe concerns uh, that Joe outlined, which perhaps mean the relaxation won't go too far in the sense that it's quite clear that she and all the other members of the leadership want to maintain the preeminence of the party and will strive to ensure uh, dominance of the party throughout as much of the system as is possible. So I think it's unrealistic to expect any dramatic policy initiatives, as Chinese politics is just not set up to work that way. I agree with Joe, she is a much more confident leader, but it's still a consensus building politics. And I don't see uh, very dramatic breakthroughs coming over the shorter term. However, I do think that the slowdown in the economy, the higher than expected uh, inflation figures that came in towards the end of the last year, has pushed the leadership to confront some issues that they might not have taken on uh, until later in the year. So they have moved a little bit beyond the less per pomp and circumstance in reporting leaders. You know, four courses in the banquet, which is really good for me because I could do with losing even more weight. So if we can get rid of the 10-course banquets as a part of this political transition, I'm all for it. And if you look, but I won't go into details, I think the most interesting reforms so far have related to financial sector issues. And that's where I think we're going to begin to see uh, significant reforms moving ahead. And that will, in turn, have very significant economic and ultimately political consequences. Uh, the Chinese leadership has done a number of interesting things uh, in this uh, particular area. 
So if I look at challenges moving ahead, there are multiple. Joe has talked about corruption. That was one of the things on my list, but I won't go uh, into that again. Essentially, I agree with Joe that you can do so much, but you can only go so far. A genuine campaign to eradicate corruption will essentially rip the party apart. Just think of all the different campaigns that have gone on, the people at different levels of the bureaucracy who are waiting for the next campaign to roll around to get payback on the person who criticized them in the previous round. It's just too devastating to the system to really unlet that fold fully. So let me just briefly touch on two other issues, the economy and then demographics. Um, the economy, of course, they can do something about, but they're landed with the demographic profile that is the result of prior decisions by the leadership. They might be able to ameliorate that, but it's a demographic they're going to have to live with and they're going to have to work with. Now, the main challenge in the economy is to restructure the drivers of growth. I think there is now in China a general consensus that the economic model that has served China so well in the past must undergo fundamental changes to maintain long-term sustainable growth. So as we've seen, uh, but this again was what Hu Jintao talked about over 10 years ago, they wanted a shift to more of a consumption-driven strategy. And the fact that that has been a goal for 10 years and is still the goal and has not been achieved fully shows just how difficult it is to bring that process about. And it shows how difficult it is to move from reliance on state investment and exports. The basic problem is that growth is sustainable. Of course it is, especially if you're going to move another 300, 400 million people into cities. But it is deeply unfair. And that, I think, is the crux of the problem. And it needs, therefore, to undergo the, undergo the tricky transition from a mobilization strategy to an efficiency uh, focus. Now, investment in, inf in infrastructure and industry, of course, are going to remain important. But there's little capacity for the investment GDP ratio to rise much further. So the problem, again, is not the level of investment. It's the efficiency and the efficacy of that investment. In fact, if you look at the capital stock per person in 2010, the capital stock per person was only 20% of that in the US at PPP rate. So there is still a lot of capacity for investment there. But again, with looking at import, exports, there's, there's not much capacity for it to expand much uh, further. If you look at it uh, in terms of percentage to GDP, it looks much more like a small island economy like Taiwan than it does really like a continental economy. And there's significant obstacles to uh, making that shift to consumption. The high savings rate, can they get people to stop saving? Can they get people to feel more confident about the future that they'll start spending that money? You've got the export and import competing industries. You've got the power of the coastal provinces. You've got the real estate, the construction industries and China's commercial banks. So they do want to make that shift, but it's going to be hard. And let me summarize again. I think it's sustainable, but it's deeply unfair. The last issue that I'll just touch on, as I said, I agree on the corruption questions, is that that economic shift will have to take place when China is undergoing significant demographic changes. And by 2015, 2016, the impacts of those demographic changes will be felt. So we're going to see the negative effect of higher dependency ratios and greater expenditures on elderly care. I started saying 10 years ago, if I had money, which I don't have, 
or if I was an investor, the thing I'd be putting my money into is homes for elderly care. You know, China likes to talk about how much they care about the family much more than we foreigners and we Westerners. That's just not true. You know, most of the kids who've grown up as single kids, they're not going to want to go back and live with the parents and look after the parents. They're going to want to find them nice, comfortable, elderly homes that they can uh, put them in and that they can spend uh, their autumn years in. So by 2050, China will age on average about 13.8 years. Just to give you a comparator, America over that period of time, the age in America will uh, only uh, increase by about three and a half years. So as a number of people have now said, China will become the first society to grow old before it grows rich. And we really don't know what the consequences of that are. Already, it's officially an aging state with over 10% of the population over 60. And this will have a number of policy consequences that the new leadership will have to deal with. There's the significant pension obligation that it's going to have to deal with. There will be significant increases in medical costs. We know from any study with aging populations, the amount that has to get spent on medical care and how much that goes up. There will be a lower fertility rate, and that will mean that there will be a lower domestic savings rate, but potentially a higher return to labor. The second worrying factor in the uh, demographics, and this is something often in discussions with Chinese colleagues they want to push aside, and don't really want to recognize, and that's the gender imbalance that is a consequence of the family planning program. In 2010, the latest uh, census, the sex ratio male to females is just over 105 to 100. That means there's going to be about 34 million more men than women as China moves forward. The real problem, though, is at birth. If you look at the figures at birth, it's about 118, 119 to 100 down slightly from the peak of over 120 in 2005. And that, again, creates its own sets of problems as that flows through uh, the demographic cohorts. And Chinese researchers have suggested that by 2020, there will be 24 million more males of marrying age than there will be uh, females. Now, again, if the economy doesn't keep going, if jobs don't keep being created, the last thing you want is tens of millions of unmarried males hanging around in urban centers where they could become reservoirs for potential unrest. Again, it has consequences. The distortion of family structures that I alluded to. The strain on the capacity for the elderly. Also, the increase in dowry payments. There's a village that I've done a lot of work in in southwest China along the Burmese border. Uh, about 15 years ago, the dowry price used to be about 300 and something renminbi. It's now over 3,000 uh, renminbi. And the average income in that village is about 2,000 renminbi. So one and a half times the average uh, annual income. And that's a lucky village, as they say, because they raid women and steal women from Myanmar, which is just across the border. So there are serious problems uh, coming through this. There's going to be the rise in commercial sex work. There are the potential threats for STDs and other things. And what is the impact going to be on urban unemployment? So yes, she may be a confident leader. He might go into another period of relaxation. But uh, it's going to be very tough to deal with those policy challenges. And my sense is things will move slowly. We won't expect dramatic movements. By about 2015, 2016, things will come to a head. I was sitting with a group of very senior party members, uh, and I let out a joke saying, well, you know, maybe there won't be a 19th Party Congress. And they all said, oh, yes, there will. 
but we're not sure there'll be a 20th. Thank you. This has been a production of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.